There was a great song we've sung, Come and Behold the Holy God, isn't it? And uh, now we come to his word. This is where you find the Holy God. It's his very word. So let's turn to it in humility and hear it, hear his word to us. In Second Samuel chapter 11, we read the following. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittites. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall 
Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. The message is sent out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But... The thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, And it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives... And give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, 
I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ross. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even where it challenges us and is difficult. Uh, But we thank you, Lord, that you have much to teach us. And we ask that your spirit will do that today as we consider this narrative, this story, uh, in the the greater story of your redemption. Amen. Well, have you ever gotten to a point where after a decent stint of being good, where you thought to yourself, you know what? I've been pretty good lately. I reckon I've earned myself a little bit of naughtiness, a little bit of a break. You know, maybe it's something small like a bowl of ice cream after a week of solid dieting. Or maybe a a night of binging TV when you've been disciplined for the rest of the week. Or maybe it's something more serious, like getting drunk one night after a whole month of discipline. And you think, just, just once won't hurt. Or perhaps a, a small bet after a whole month of gambling abstinence. Or maybe just a, just a quick, small Google image search after a month of prayer and purity. Just a little break. I've been good. I deserve a, a treat, a little indulgence. A little sin, just a tad, it's not going to hurt me, is it? So the thinking might go. And it seems like this is exactly the situation that we find David in here in this part of 2 Samuel. He's been a good king, a very good king, a man after God's own heart even. The best king, let's just call it. Surely this king deserves a break from being a leader. You know, hence his decision to stay home from the war. Kings didn't stay home from the war, they went to the war. But David's like, no, I'm I'm taking this one off. Surely he deserves a little treat, a little indulgence on his home holiday. A little sin won't hurt, will it? But hurt it does. In fact, it hurts a lot, as we'll consider. And it's not just the sin itself that hurts, it's actually David's ongoing efforts to rein it in, his, his human solution to this incredibly deep spiritual problem. And that's what we're looking at today in this story, the failure of our human efforts to deal with sin and all the ways that that can play out in our lives. And it starts with our fixation on control. We become fixated on control. It's all about control. After all, this is actually how David got here in the first place. He controlled Bathsheba. He used his position as power over her. One commentator, an older commentator, puts it really well. He says, the action is quick. The verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. He sent, he took, he lay. The royal deed of self-indulgence does not take very long. There's no adornment 
to the action. The woman then gets some verbs. She returned. She conceived. But the action is so stark. There's nothing but action, in fact. There's, there's no conversation. There's no hint of caring, of affection, of love. Only lust. We don't see David calling her by name, not speaking to her. And at the end of the encounter, she is only the woman. The verb that finally counts is conceived, but the telling verb is that he took her. Now, we might not call this rape in the aggressive sense, with the idea of physical coercion, but there is probably still coercion. David is still taking advantage. He's using his position as king to order his subject around. And we don't actually know how willing Bathsheba was. We'll never know that. But what we're, not, what we're not seeing here is consensual love that seeks to serve the other person. We're seeing selfish lust that is driving the dominant party. And it's really significant in this overall narrative, and even as we've looked at David so far, because it's, it's just out of character. In the two chapters before this, in chapters 9 and 10, uh, we find David being driven by hesed love. That's the, the Hebrew word, hesed love, which is, which is really like godly, faithful kindness, steadfast love. And we see that in chapter 9, when he acts with love towards Mephibosheth, who is Jonathan's son, because he promised to look after Jonathan's family. We saw that a few weeks ago. And then in chapter 10, we see him showing this love to Hanun, the, the new king of Ammon, because his father had died. This is David's default, to act with this godly love. He was a man after God's own heart, after all. He's going to love like God loves. But here in chapter 11, instead of being driven by hesed, he's being driven by eros, by lust. His control over Bathsheba actually reveals a lack of self-control. That really he's not in control at all. His flesh is controlling him. And then Bathsheba gets pregnant. Something else he couldn't control. And who would have thought? Sex makes babies. Surprise. So again, he tries to regain control. He's like, all right, I'm going to bring Uriah home from the war. And Uriah comes home. And so he, he tries to butter him up. He, he has this conversation, has this friendly chat. How's the war going, Uriah? Oh, why don't you go home and, and take it easy for a little bit? And that doesn't work. And so then he, he, he gets him drunk. But it turns out to be harder to force a husband to sleep with his own wife than it was to take another man's wife for himself. Why is that? Because Uriah's honour wouldn't allow it. And there's this incredible contrast here of Uriah's self-control in contrast to David's complete lack of it. I mean, here's this man home from war where you could die any day and he's even drunk at one point and yet he refrains from making love to his wife because his friends are still out there fighting. His commander's out there fighting. The Ark of the Covenant is out there. It's in a tent and he shows discipline. And you can just bet that this frustrates David to no end. Not only is his plan being thwarted, but there's this guy who is showing him up in every way. 
And so in the end, sends him back to the war and has him killed. He escalates things. He heaps sin upon sin upon sin. And this whole control issue is so telling, isn't it? David just alternating from taking control to losing control to taking control. It's a bit like an Indiana Jones movie, if you're ever into those, where you've got Indy comes and commandeers a Nazi vehicle, and then he fights the Nazi in the front seat, kicks him out the door, takes control of the wheel, he's like, I'm set, and then a Nazi comes in, kicks him out the door, takes over the wheel, and back and forth it goes. Of course, Indy comes back, he's dragged by the car, and back in front of the wheel again. But it's that kind of picture. David is, I'm having control. He's not got control. And the big difference is, he's no hero. Not in this story. And it should force us to sit up and to ask ourselves, who's in control when I act out? Who's in control when I respond to my sin? Am I being driven by the flesh, by selfish indulgence? Or am I being driven by God and the gospel? I think porn is a classic example of users just taking control, isn't it? You know, you can click on whatever you want, as much as you want. That's the cell. Sex is at your fingertips. Take what you will, leave the rest. It's completely customizable. And in fact, that's how the whole internet is wired. That's how our touchscreens are wired, to give you control, to give you as much consumption as you want. But sex, at least, is not about control or consumption. It's about relationship, not gratification. It's about giving, not taking. And are you really in control with pornography or are you being controlled by your own flesh? And then even in our response to sin, whether it's lust or something else, even in our response, when we react to it and we try harder and we say, I'm going to fix this, I'm going to do better. Are we being driven by self-control or are we being driven by guilt? You know, are we desperately trying to regain control of the situation when all along we're controlled by our shame? Our only hope is to surrender to the forgiveness of Christ, as we'll come back to. But another thing that we see in David in this story is a redefining of righteousness. And whether it's what we talked about at the beginning, how, you know, if you're good 90% of the time, then maybe you can be bad for 10% of it. Or whether it's in David's responses, what we find is him just tweaking and changing righteousness to suit himself. And as a king, you can do that more than others. And it's a bit like our society, isn't it? We continually change the laws when they do not match personal desires whether it's about abortion or gender or other things like that. Oh, if the desire's there, then we need to change what the law actually means. Have a look at uh, David's reaction to Joab's news in verse 25. 
David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. See, David's David's orders didn't just get Uriah killed, but a bunch of other men as well. Men with families, men with lives. And so Joab sends this report and he expects David to flare up at this news, to be outraged by the loss of life. Because he knows David, that's, that's what he expected. But instead, no sweat, Joab. It's all good. People die, that's war, it's no biggie. Let's just move on, keep going, pretend it never happened. And then you contrast this with David's reaction to Nathan's story in chapter 12, verse 5. What? A man ate another man's pet lamb. There is no punishment fit for such a person. He must die a thousand deaths. Now, I'm not trying to downplay the reality, but it is interesting, isn't it, in our day and age, how, you know, cruelty to animals and animal deaths and stuff, outrageous, but when it comes to people, it's like, yeah, that happens, that happens. But I should say that David's reaction here to this story shows his true heart, because it's an outrageous story. I mean, what kind of guy is this who would do that? But it also highlights him going over the top because he is justifying his own excuses for adultery and murder. And you know what? We all do this. You know, we hack the law and righteousness as if it's a piece of Ikea furniture. Let's make it fit us and our room and what we want it to be. We tailor God's commands as if it's a suit that doesn't quite fit us. And so we've got to make it fit. So let's adjust it here. Let's change it there. And then it'll fit us better. We customize the Bible's settings as if it's an app that's designed to meet our lifestyle. Don't like it? Just change it. Think about it. Have you ever downplayed sin? or failed to challenge it because of your own involvement. Illegal downloads, shared streaming, anyone? A few too many drinks on the weekend, anyone? Have you ever tried to justify your sin by comparing it to worse things? Or or perhaps comparing it to all of your self-righteous acts? Yes, I neglected my kids today. But at least I work hard to provide for them. And at least I don't yell at them or hit them like my colleague does. Yeah, we probably gossiped a bit too much about so-and-so today, but at least I'm nice to her face. And you know, I brought her a meal a couple of months ago when she was doing it tough. By the way, you can usually tell when you are using the two words, at least, there's some self-justification going on, at least this, at least that. Have you ever gone puritanical on 
other sins because of your guilt in something else. Homosexuality is a sin. It's right there in the Bible. We all know it. We can read it. It's there. Says the guy as he guiltily orders his third pair of sneakers for the month. Masks are mandated. The Bible says, obey the government. Do it for others. She says, after getting home from church without encouraging a single person. How do you customize righteousness to suit yourself? Because in the end, only God defines righteousness. Only His standard matters and we all fall short. All of us. We all have planks in our eyes when we look at other people, when we point out their specks. Only God sees clearly. And that brings me to the next point this morning, how we ignore God's sight. Look at this, the last sentence of chapter 11, and Ross emphasized this well for us before. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's the first time in the chapter that God's name is mentioned. And it's like a gong. Right there at the very end, it's like boom, announcing there's judgment coming. Literally, it says, the thing David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it actually contrasts what David says to Joab through the messenger. He says, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. It's all good. Don't let it displease you, Joab. But it is evil. It is evil and God has seen it all. Just because he's been silent does not mean he's been sightless. Just because David has not acknowledged him does not mean that he's absent. Just imagine that uh, one day you're a guest in someone's house. You've gone over for a morning cuppa and you're just there to catch up and chat. And so your host goes into the kitchen to get a cup of tea ready and you sort of wander around the living room looking at the decor and the pictures and the photos and things like that, you know, as you do that. And you, you have a look at this lovely vase, you pick it up, it's like, oh, this looks really nice, this seems valuable. And as you put it back down, you drop it. And so you go to pick it up and you're like, oh no, there's a chip that's come out of this vase. And so you, you go, but it's just one piece, I think I can put it back. And you sit it back there and it sits nicely and you're like, nobody will know. And you set it back down and you're like, safe. And then you turn around and your host is just standing there watching you. <laughs> Busted. The whole time. And though God is, is much more than this, He is the God who sees everything. As Hebrews 4 tells us, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. Everything is laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Everything. Every single thought, including when you wished that so-and-so would just be out of your life forever because you're sick of them. Every single desire, including the fantasy where you have sex with someone who's not your spouse. Every single action, including what happens in your bedroom or your study or between you and your private screen or browser. 
There is no such thing as a secret with God. There is no truly private browser, if that's your solution. VPNs mean nothing to him. All is uncovered and laid bare. God defines righteousness and he sees everything. There's no escape. There's no loophole. There's no way out of that. There's only grace. Grace which we so easily forget. When we favour our self-help human solutions, we shove grace off to the side and think, I don't need that. I don't want that. We forget the amazing grace of God. I was originally going to call this sermon David and Bathsheba, the fall from grace. With a sense of irony, because even though David speeds down this steep hill of sin and destruction. What we see is that God's grace pursues him all the way. All the way. And it restores him. We're going to talk more about that restoration as well as David's confession uh, next week when we look at Psalm 51. It's the psalm that he writes under the guilt of what he's done. But for now, we have to see God's grace at work, especially as the prophet Nathan comes into the story and he holds up this mirror to David's actions and says, look what you've done. See, because no matter how good David has been up until this point, no matter how much of a good king he was, this sin deserved death. He should have been killed right there on the spot. Every sin does. But God shows mercy. He punishes, yes, bringing further calamity and division on David's family, but there's still grace. Look at verse 13 to 14. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's the short version. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. The Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die, but your son will. Bathsheba's son. You know what that's called? It's called substitution. David is spared, but their love child will die. And without a doubt, it points to our substitute, Jesus Christ, God's Son. He dies in our place. He was innocent, but paid for our sin and folly. He became sin so that we might become God's righteousness. Or as Romans 5 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But you might say, well, that's not fair. I mean, David was the one who sinned, and maybe Bathsheba too. Why should an innocent child die in his place? 
I mean, even Jesus had a choice to go to the cross. This child has no choice. And it's all true, you know, I I can't actually answer that objection. Except to say that grace is not fair. That mercy is not fair. It never has been and never will be. And if grace had not pursued David in this story, everyone would have died, including the child. Is it fair that Jesus dies in our place? Is it fair that an innocent man would suffer the abuse of other men? And not only that, but the wrath of God himself instead of us? Grace is not fair. Mercy is not fair. And you know what else? It's not nice. It's not enjoyable. It's not fluffy and happy. John Newton says in his famous hymn that grace both teaches his heart to fear as well as relieves his fears. What does it mean if not that grace is somewhat fearsome? Grace might be amazing, grace might be saving, but it's rarely nice. Whether we're talking about the slaughter of thousands and thousands and millions of animals, I should say, throughout the sacrificial system, or the death of an infant here in this story, or the torture and the condemnation of the Son of God. Grace is actually pretty ugly. Why? Because sin is ugly. And grace is the only fix for sin. All of David's efforts, all that he'd done to try and fix his own sin, it just made things worse and worse and it got uglier and uglier. But God's solution, with the ugliness included, it is the only way. Grace is our only hope. If you start to get stomach cramps one day because of a malignant tumor in your gut, you are not going to fix it by changing your diet. The only hope is that you get surgery and you get that thing removed. And you know what? Surgery is ugly. It's messy. It's painful. It's risky. But it might just save your life. And so goes the grace of God. If you're struggling with porn, for example, you're not going to fix it with surface solutions. Accountability software, accountability partners, they're great helps, they're great things. But they do not replace the grace of God cutting you open like a scalpel and transplanting the new life of Jesus Christ in place of your old sinful life. And so it goes for greed. So it goes for envy, for drunkenness, for every sin that we wrestle with. The gospel calls us to die over and over and over. To surrender control. To accept God's definition of righteousness, God's word, God's commands. Because nothing less will fix us. But the promise is there that if we do, we will be transformed. We will be renewed. We will be sanctified. Our hearts 
will respond to him more and more as the days go by and as they become more like God's heart. That's what he promises. And we're going to talk more about that next week in Psalm 51. But for now, I want to ask that we will respond together with a prayer. And that's the prayer of uh, a hymn writer, Robert Robinson. And I've just mind blanked on the, come thou fount is the, the title. I might ask the musicians to come up at this point. And Robert Robinson actually, a little bit like David, he sort of, after that time where he wrote this hymn, he, he went through his struggles. He went through all sorts of miseries and looked back one day on, and said, I wish I could feel the same way as I did when I wrote this. But that's just a reminder that, like David, like anyone, we all fall and we need to return to grace, to what's most important. So why don't we sing, and I especially want us to sing this prayer in verse 3. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. I'm actually constrained to it. Let that goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Because prone to wander, Lord, I am. I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's stand and sing that together.